1: Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American Podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control, to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies, from the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology, to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture, they have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded... Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast, where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth.
2: That is me, I am the paranoid American, but just because I'm paranoid and American doesn't mean I don't have a good sense of humor and I don't like to laugh. I think I've proven that if you've watched enough of me anywhere, uh, I don't take a lot of this stuff too seriously, but I do take it seriously it's it's a it's an interesting dynamic, and I got another kindred spirit, another like-minded fellow here, and that is my homeboy oh win what up <laughs> what's up T? how you doing, man? good man here i'm gonna i like i like that view but I, but i like i like being equal here too that's so cool i dig that view too that's a lot of fun what you can do so so uh i met you through podcasting i don't even remember what show it was on but i think we we connected immediately we looked into each other's eyes there was fireworks <laughs> uh, and I, and we've done a couple of shows please forgive me did we can do like a like an illuminati yep. mind control self defense course and we got into the history of the bavarian illuminati and nlp and so like we're there bro we're we're brothers from from different mothers for sure yeah uh, even the beards bro we even got like the little <laughs> yeah. skunk stripes and everything so <laughs> that's right you might have been separated from from birth or something i don't it's, know man
3: it's possible man it totally is yeah dude it it's been great. And you're so well, not you're so like well informed about a lot of this stuff. And kind of like you were saying before, having a sense of humor, it's the only way to deal with it. It might be my cope, right. It's just like humor. My grandfather was that way. It kind of runs in the family. Um, that that's like the way that I can deal with stuff. Cause the reality of some of these things that we get into through the conspiracy world is, is daunting and overwhelming at times. And that's, something that I want to try to help people with. That's kind of been my heart, you know, from the beginning is like trying to make some of this stuff a little bit more lighthearted and easier to, uh, easier to deal with and navigate. Uh, and you know, when I kind of got, I kind of came from more of this conspiracy mind, very, uh, kind of, um, I don't know, I would say, uh, just really, Desperate. (laughs) And then I kind of uh, got into spirituality through that desperation and through spirituality and just kind of looking within myself and a lot of these other ideologies, Eastern and Western, both. uh, I found a nice little mix of some different techniques, approaches, mindsets, ideologies that really do help from Stoicism to modern New Age kind of ideas, which... Obviously, they can go too far. Everything can. And so it's been this interesting, uh, I would say, development of taking a lot of these ideas and synthesizing them together in order to be able to have a, I would say, realistic view of the world, but also be able to get out of bed in the morning.
2: (laughs) I'd love to hear like a like a stoic stand up routine, just like all stoicism. You know what I mean? Like you get angry <laughs> if anyone's enjoying themselves or laughing. <laughs> yeah, it could be good, man. It could be a good one. And and I'm I'm curious if you you said like you were into conspiracies early on. How early? Like we talking straight out the womb? Did mom give you a chick track and was like, you know, the Jesuits are <laughs> the devil. They're trying to kill us. Or or how did it start?
3: Well, it started really, I would say in 2012, and it it came hard and fast for me. It was like the dark night of the soul thing. I was uh kind of blindsided cuz before that point I was really just a pleasure seeker. You know, I was just enjoying my life as much as I could <clears throat> and doing things that I thought would be fun and uh and I enjoyed all doing all that adventurous stuff, raft guiding and um, How
2: dare you enjoying yeah, life? Yeah, there. yeah. All kinds of like nature that stuff. Disgusting hedonists. <laughs> I know, I know. Right. <laughs> and showing uh, the mountains and the weather and the outdoors. It's right. disgusting.
3: Living in a van, literally down by the river, you know, and going down the river all the time. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I really did. Uh, and then I hit 30. And when I hit 30 in 2012, right around that time, I don't know if something happened. And I started uh, looking into some of these things and my whole entire wor- worldview really shifted. I, I kind of got an attitude toward the establishment and the institutions that I went uh, through. And I felt stolen from intellectually as far as my education goes and stuff like that. Uh, and now it's all part of, I think, the healing process for me because what the reality that I was taught, let's say in school, because I did go to college, um, and, and I was one of those, like I was like in and out, in and out, in and out. And I finally went through and got through with college. <clears throat> and then whenever I got out into the real world, a lot of what we were told and taught in school, in college and before just seemed to be the complete opposite of the, the reality that I was experiencing. So I kind of went on into this subjectivist kind of phase where I was reading a lot of Ayn Rand and, um, listening to Brett Vinat, uh, the school sucks podcast was one of those amazing podcast that really uh helped me to navigate he's another one of those people who kind of gets into stoicism later and some of these other ideas um but richard grove there was one documentary in particular that really got me and it was called uh, what you've been missing and it had all these different people on there uh corbett of the corbett report was on there this was back in like 2011 i think it was may shut up to james corbett Yeah, dude, that dude rips. And so all these different people were in there. I think Jan Irving and like all these other people who have gone, you know, their own different ways now.
2: Okay. Yeah. Shout out to Jan, too. He actually uh, um, (laughs) helped me on one of my comic books about Robert Gordon Wasson. Oh, that's Robert. Okay.
3: Yeah. Well, he's definitely an expert in a lot of things. Shout out to Jan. Dude, Jan,
2: I I would say stoic. (laughs) Jan
3: is definitely in that that stoic category.
2: Yeah. And the the trivium,
3: you know, learning about the trivium education, learning about the classical Greek stuff. And I'm getting back into that now. Like, that's where I'm kind of going back into. I've kind of gone into the woo-woo world. As well, uh, like, but again, that was kind of like afterwards. So I would say around 2015, 2016 was re- really when I get into that, and I found this book called Reality Transurfing that a lot of people really liked. <clears throat> it's um, I, I super resonated with it, and just decided that I would just create the audiobook and pu- publish it. Um, <clears throat> and so that's where a lot of people and I started to connect a little bit on YouTube and started doing podcasting and stuff. It was really through that. And Was it called? Reality Transurfing? Yeah, trans surfing, all one word. Um, I don't really know. He's a Russian guy. I don't really know how it's translated, but uh, I would say it's Transcendental Surfing. Probably one of my favorite books is uh, Robert... Uh, I'm sorry. I, I do love Robert Anton Wilson. But um, even, even before that is uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Self-Reliance. And so the Transcendentalists, I think, had it pretty nailed. And um, and I, I listen to a bunch of that stuff, and I would say that transurfing is it kind of echoes a lot of the sentiment in the transcendental movement, but it's a little bit more scientific. It talks a lot about more quantum kind of stuff and how energy moves um, and kind of collects, which I thought was interesting because you find a lot of that stuff in the magic world. You know these ideas of tulpas and egregores and stuff. In reality, transurfing they just call it pendulums. So it's like an energy. Collective, a collective conscious, even you could say. And then, if you go back even further, there's this old book that's French called The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon. And it talks a lot about these energies and how people will act super irrationally when they're in a group, even the most rational people. And there is this like energy that is created when people are in a group. I was just at a football game over the weekend and you it's so palpable, you know,
2: people are really in group mind. They're barking at each other, you know, they're scared. <clears throat> it's scary to read Gustav Le Bon's, the crowd, and then go in immediately and see a huge crowd because <laughs> it like you, you start to stop seeing, you know, a hundred people and you just see the mass. It's like the blob uh, that, that, that came and just enveloped them all. What's the, what's the, uh, there's a video game, I can't remember it's like Kadasuki, you know, kingdom or whatever, but it's like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and like envelopes stuff. Where like that thing, that blob, that group of people is now one thing, and you can like reason and negotiate with it because <clears throat> the second you like pose it a question, right? It's not like there's gonna be an internal discussion. They'll kind of just be like it's it'll exhibit its its wants and its needs as that big, you know, collective. It's such a weird fascinating topic man it is it's it is it's, it's incredible and
3: when you look in when you start looking deeper into some of these other um, you know religions or philosophies or whatever they all have similar things whether it's a demon or a to- toku or a you know a, whatever it is you know energy form uh, thought form however you want to classify it or you know give it a give it a personification but it does it is its own sort of entity and it has its own needs and wants which is basically more energy and the big thing about it that i w- would love for people to understand is is that when we oppose something <clears throat> we're actually actively feeding that which we oppose like that's one of the biggest esoteric truths and especially one of the big big lessons in that book <clears throat> that i really didn't see anywhere else you know you know a lot of the ideas you can find in other books but when he's talking a lot about energy and how it works and <clears throat> when whenever we go against something we're actively, you know, we're polarized against it. We're actively really contributing to that as a force because that negative energy is going right into whatever that ideology is. So if we go back to the football game analogy, you know, you've got the first team that, say, the home team, and everybody goes wild. Well, you feel all that energy. And then the next team comes out, and they all get booed. But you feel that energy, too. It's just a different type of energy, but it's energy, you know. It's just energy radiated as negative. Now, if if when that team ran out and nothing happened, everybody just shut up. What if they all like turned around and just didn't say anything? It would feel so empty and weird, awesome. and awkward. You know, <laughs> like it'd be like, what is going on? There would be no energy for that team to feed up on. You see, those football players that are like, yeah, hate me, I love it. You know, but if you if that if you take that
2: energy away, now it's just gone. Well, I guess in the world of Gustav Le bon too, I might argue that the crowd, unless it's it's been like pre-orchestrated, would be incapable of organically doing that either. (laughs) Because like a normal untrained person, it will be really hard for you to say, okay, you're really charged with energy. Now stop. Right. And then um, and then like expect that an entire crowd without rehearsal could do that. So again, like the crowd can't do that request, which is what makes it all the more weird. Because then it's like, if it were to happen, you would know instinctively, like you wouldn't even have to understand psychology. You'd just be like, oh, they must have planned to do this right. because your brain's like, I, I wouldn't have done that, you know, spontaneously unless I knew ahead of time. It's, it's just a weird, but you don't know it until you know it, right? Like once you understand the crowd, once you understand NLP stuff, so Where did uh, well, actually, I wanted to ask you where comedy came in, but I've got an even more important question. Sure, and you can be totally honest, this is a complete safe space, pre recorded. So if if you (laughs) if you slip up and you're embarrassed to admit anything, you said that you kind of had your eyes open in 2012 and you immediately mentioned Ayn Rand. So I wanted to ask, like, did you find like did your aunt post something on Facebook and that's what. (laughs) threw you down the rabbit hole and like QAnon or, or I guess that would have been before uh, QAnon, but yeah, it was a little bit. Do before. you remember what it was in 2012 specifically? I don't exactly. Remember what it was, but I did immediately start listening to
3: Alex Jones and really anything I could Early find. It, brother. Yeah, that's right. You know, they're coming to get us the globalists, and the frogs are gay, you know? And I was like, okay, well, here we are, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, I'm eating poison. And you know, like, like, that's part of this whole, you know, just getting slapped upside the head with a completely different worldview kind of thing, uh, that was challenging, especially at the time. Like at the time, so I'm like living the high life, being a raft guy, just a total bum, you know, just, I mean, not, you know, by choice, you know, living out of a van and literally right down by a it creek. It sounds kind of awesome, man. Taylor, I mean, it, it was. And- yeah, I mean, there's just, awesome. but there's just nowhere to go at that point. So like when you hit, so I hit, so I'm hitting 30 and I'm like, all right, I've been a, you know, uh, a ski instructor and a raft guide and I've done these cool jobs and they are work. I mean, it's not, I know probably for a lot of people outside looking in, they're like, well, I must be, what a charmed life. And it's true. It is. There's still a lot of work to do. It's not all as You're not on vacation. As, you're, you're Even though vacation. you're
2: like with people on vacation, you're not the one on vacation. Yeah. No,
3: there's only so many times you can take that same boat down from Missouri before you just want to just... Were there any old, horrible puns that people would like always say? <laughs> well, all raft guides are true comedians. So yeah, so as soon as you get on the bus, they're like, hey, who's ready to go? Uh, who's ready to go skydiving? You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, who's never done this before? And then everybody would, you know, a lot of people would raise their hands and they'd be like, it's just a bus ride, guys, relax, you know. Call them down. So, okay. yeah, the whole entire trip is just messing with your guests and riffing on them and telling them jokes. A lot of cheesy kid jokes. I know a lot of those, but they're great, I think. And uh, and so I was doing that and then ski instructing. And then at 30, it was like, OK, well, what am I going to do next? You know, like what is next for me at this point? You know, i'm i've got to grow up i guess and I, I didn't really see much of a um, <clears throat> much of a future in the adventure industry unless i wanted to manage and then uh, what's the point in doing that like now you know, i don't get on the water anymore i don't get to do the fun thing that is associated with the job so i really it was time for me to do something else so i came home and uh started working on a tree farm and uh started really beginning my entrepreneurial journey along with learning about, um, you know, yeah, I say, who, who else was big at that time? There's that Canadian guy. I can't remember what his name was, but Jordan Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson knows it's, it's another guy who's like real, like anarchy, uh, Jordan, yeah, the guy that was like divorce your parents, yeah, Stefan Molyneux. That's there you go. Yeah, I was listening to him, (laughs) divorce your parents guy. (laughs) Yeah, that guy. And so I was listening to him. Just you know, anybody in that world, because like libertarianism, classical liberalism, dude, it makes a lot of sense to me. You like as a stand-up comic, you see me, you probably would think I was liberal. But first of all, about that, I don't want anybody to know what my true beliefs are really through my act. I mean, maybe a little bit, you know, just to kind of have that. Maybe a suspicion about it, but you will notice a lot of comedians. You might, a lot of people might think, yeah, I think like you. And then it's like, but it's like, no, I'm just pointing at something out. But I say all that uh, to say, um, it was a lot of anything I could find in that alternative, uh, media. Stuff so combined with Alex Jones, uh, Brett Vinat, Stefan Molyneux, anyone who was talking, Larkin Rose was a huge influence. All his books are fantastic. He's a great writer, he's a great debater. Um, when it comes to the idea philosophically of anarchy, and I was already kind of in the libertarian camp anyway. You know, like, do you remember Doug Stanhope's uh 2008 uh special? It was called no refunds and oh he's, yeah he's
2: wearing like a libertarian jersey and he's just going ham it's well, like he, he oh, ran for a libertarian president at some point didn't he or, or like like an offshoot of it he was really involved and really politically active for a long time and then at a certain point he just he just
3: gave up and just became kind of what he is now which is you know he's, he's a lot darker now than i think than he was but he I think he wanted to help people through comedy to understand things. And I don't know if that's really all that feasible, to be fair. That's, I think, his
2: realization. I mean, even before his Libertarian run, he had some really dark material. He had a book. I don't even want to say the name of the book that he had, but it was like (laughs) playing with a P word. um, And it was like he was running, I guess, like a Chris Hansen-style uh, thing online and like trolling, you know, trolling predators online, and then published a book of all of the crazy, nasty things that like they would say, and then he would just like, yeah, it, it was like typical Doug Stanhope fashion, but wow. that was like really, really freaking dark man. That was that was like in the early two thousands, I think, and I and I think it might have been in his no refunds. One of my favorite rants where he's like, you know, Jesus or you know that that Bible saying where it's you teach a man a fish. You know, then he's got to go get a fishing license and he's got to register with the IRS and then the ATF shows up because he's in a. And it's like such a great, you know, it's such a great rant, man. It is. It is, man. Now now I got to. This is an interesting dynamic because. Doug Stanhope, I think there was also a stand-up where he brought Alex Jones along. If if anyone's not seen this before, it I is haven't. I gotta check it is out. a train wreck that you need to watch. <laughs> if you just look for like Stanhope, um Alex Jones Austin, I'm pretty sure that's where it was. Okay. And he has Alex Jones open for him. Wow. And Alex Jones is not a comedian. And this is way <laughs> before he was like chilling with, you know, Kiltoni. It is before kiltony existed. Cause again, this is like early 2000s, I think. And he just runs out and he's just like calling people sheep and they're all enslaved. And then Doug has to like follow this up. And the first thing is just like, that was the biggest mistake. Cause it's like, he got energy in the room, but it wasn't the right energy. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I'm like Stanhope has an interesting way where he can bring in these conspiracy theories and like government regulation and then turn it into jokes um, but man, like, uh, almost everyone outside of Stanhope that ever tries to joke about a conspiracy theory, it's re- usually very awkward and like falls flat. Like, so is there is there a special <laughs> trick? Like, what is it about joking about politics and conspiracy theories? If if it's not something silly, like if it's a real thing, like how does that you know suck the air out of the room? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, so what I've learned is that as soon as you take a side
3: and it doesn't matter what that side is, even if people agree with you or they don't, they go, you know, I don't want to just hop on to your, you know, bandwagon or your soapbox or whatever. So I think people are kind of put off by that. And, uh, and it's, I think it's also a little bit lazy to, to just agree with people. Um, you know, there's a lot of comedians that do that just to get some validation. And I get it, right? Like we're up there trying to get laughs. So sometimes it's a little bit harder. So if you can get them to clap, you know, talk about something they like, if that's their football team or something about their town or whatever, to just kind of get them on board and get them focused to you. Sometimes it's just like a really helpful uh, trick. But there is a a way to joke about that stuff that's not polarizing. Um, You know, you can, for instance, make fun of the character. Of the president, you know, and liken him to someone else, uh, in, and use an analogy without saying that he, you know, is a bad president or that the d- Democrats are stupid or Republicans are dumb or, you know, so-and-so has gone full blown Republican or whatever, which is now a punchline in comedy, um, which is hilarious to me. But, um, but it's such a weird time too, because like, you can't really be punk rock and be liberal either, you know? Like it just, it that that you're, it's so establishment, you know? So it is a weird kind of place to be as far as like offending people's sensibilities. One thing that I learned, because when I first got started, I was like, I can't be offended. Like no one can offend me. But the truth is, that's not true. Anyone can be offended. And uh, talking about the conspiracy stuff, I think Ron Funches has the best take on this. And I think he, he he wins. He's like, so y'all don't believe in conspiracy theories? He's like, so you guys think the government's just batting a thousand, you yeah. know, <laughs> telling you the truth? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what you guys believe? And then he's like, I have a kid and I lied to that guy 200 times a day or whatever. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's completely. So showing how unreasonable something is or how absurd or silly it is, I think is a great way to break that tension. And then people are more likely to go along with you if you're going to go down. And another part of that is just the perspective or the point of view of the comic, right? Like if I go and see someone like Lewis Black, I know what his perspective is. And I laugh because he's talking about his perspective and being congruent to it. So even though I don't agree with what he's saying about X, Y, or Z, I understand why he's convenienced and angry and upset. So when he says that next thing, I laugh and I relate to him because I've been exasperated too. So it kind of took me a long time to pick up on that, on on what that is. But like having your perspective and your point of view and remaining true to that, I think that makes you uh, able to have a different opinion than the audience. I think there's a couple of different approaches where you can have an outrageous opinion uh, and you can, and that's funny. Like I have a funny opinion and I love that. And you can also have your own true opinion and make that funny as well you know so i talk about libertarianism and i talk about how libertarian being a libertarian is kind of like being a um like a uh, conscious conscientious objector at a sex party you know <laughs> it's like i'm gonna be here uh and i'm just gonna point out all the you know like there's gonna i'm just gonna point it has out to next, be voluntary there's gonna be some consequences i'm not gonna get involved you know what i'm saying like i'll be in there at the corner you know just kind of watching but I'm going to let you guys know. I'm going to be annoying about it. Um, you know that that kind of thing, right? Where I can talk about that, and then I've had other comedians come up and just stack a joke on top of that. Like uh, Corey Islet was so funny. Like after I did that bit, and it went well, and then she came up after me and she was like, "Yeah, the Libertarian. That's the one who's like, um, at the end of class, they're do like, uh, 'Don't we have? Do we have any homework for tonight?'" You know, <laughs> I was like, yeah. that's exactly right. Like that's uh, that's that's funny. The person that's actually you know, kind of calling the stuff out that everyone else is just kind of um afraid to acknowledge so um <clears throat> so yeah, so it's it can be fun that way if you sell yourself in a certain way without trying to i think people i think what it is is people get tired of being like proselytized to so whenever you go up there and you try to, to convince them of something, they immediately want to be left alone. (laughs) So they kind of pull back on you a little bit. And sometimes when you realize that, that's even more fun because you can push them a little bit, have them pull back and then bring them back in. And now they're like, okay, now I really trust this guy. He's going to take me somewhere I didn't want to go and then bring me back. So he knows what he's doing. So they can kind of relax a little bit. And then you can get a little bit more outrageous. If you hear somebody like Chris Rock or So you know, some of these more accomplished comedians when they're talking about performing, they talk about how they stack their material and put the really controversial stuff toward the end because they've they've got these people coming along. And what Chris Rock says is he's like, My favorite part of the show is like about 45 minutes in, where the audience is completely with me and I ain't even said shit yet. You know, I'm about to say this stuff that's gonna, you know, fuck them up and (laughs) And so and so they're all with me. So we're going to see kind of what happens at that point as he kind of pushes back a little bit. And uh, you can s- sort of see that dynamic. It's like comedy is like anything else. People want the full range of emotions. You know, they don't if it's if it's just I don't know, it can be very bland and boring, even if it's pretty good. You know, I like to see a full range too when I go to a show. It's kind of fun to see a comic bomb or two, you know, I don't obviously want to bomb, but it's always fun to watch, you know, Oh, this, this, you know, this dynamic and the energy is always different every night too. That's another thing that's crazy. It's like Saturday night. I've fucking bombed. And then last night, it's basically the same set, just absolutely crushed. So it's like, I don't know. There's so much to it. It's a very mystical art form. I would say as far as things go,
2: <clears throat> What? I think there's definitely something to the occultism of comedy in that archetype of like the court jester, because it's man, it's such a weird thing where Alex Jones, if he went out on the stage and he says something, people would get offended. But if like a comedian comes out and says the exact same thing, but says it with like a snark and says it with, you know, like tongue in cheek and it's like, am I being serious? Am I not being serious? You know, like a Stephen Colbert style approach if you had someone coming out saying what Stephen Colbert would say in in character as Stephen Colbert then it's like what a horrible hateful person but then Colbert says it and I think that same thing kind of goes all the way back where the court jester was allowed to point out certain flaws with like the kingdom and and things because it was like this parody and it was almost like I'm making fun of everybody so therefore I get this pass Um, it must have been a very scary job I think (laughs) (laughs) um <laughs> uh, but i mean the the amount of power and like in the terms of like occultism right like the occult power that you've got in being the person that is shaping the energy of someone that has the real power right it's like they've got the power and they bounce it off the jester and the jester is the only because everyone else is a yes man the jester is the only one that's technically not a complete yes man um so i've so I think that there might be something like super deep rooted in the humans where like all right the comedian gets a pass because comedy is where we get our actual truth from but we get it in this way that everyone feels like you have to be smart enough to understand it and it's like oh well I know that he's joking but other people don't know he's joking so that that means it's okay because like we're on the level um so but and and I think there was another great example too where um John Stewart semi-ended uh tucker carlson's like first life like it, if we were like to peel back his his lifeline right because they were on a show i think it was like a crossfire or something and they're having a, a debate and tucker carlson like criticize him on something and uh john stewart's like dude the show that comes on after me is freaking puppets making prank calls because i think it was like <laughs> crank yankers. and it's and it's it's two things one it's a great freaking point because It's like, you know, he was expecting to have this like really in-depth conversation about this political point. And the other guy's like, dude, you know, like there's dick jokes coming on in 15 minutes. You know, you want to wrap this up. But at the same time, he was making a political stance. He absolutely was drawing a line in the sand, but then he criticizes the other person. It's like, oh, you want to criticize a comedian? How dare you? And it makes the other person look like the cranky pants. right? Right. Um, And man, there's, there's something very powerful in, in a recognizing, like I have that power and actually having the finesse and and the comedic chops to be able to say controversial stuff in that comedic way, because truly, like truly, truly, if you did that without the comedy, you get banned off of social media for hate speech. But if you do it and people laugh, it's allowed, it's the weirdest It like I I feel like this is like one of the ultimate conspiracies that we're just never going to figure out in our lifetime. But like, why do comedians get a pass? I don't know exactly why,
3: but I have been looking into like the Greeks. So I've I've heard uh, comedians and people who talk about comedy and teaching it talk about how joke writing is an ancient art form, and I'm like an ancient art form. And so as I start looking around and digging and researching yeah man the greeks knew how powerful a joke could be how that could so easily dismiss a point you know even if it's a, a not not even addressing e- even if there is a fallacy
2: even if it's a fallacious argument <clears throat> that's pinned back if it's you'd, or- you'd have to know that it's a fallacious argument and you'd have to know the rhetorical law cuz there's like a like a list of here's all the rhetorical you know rhetoric laws And like, once you know those, it's exactly what you're talking about. Or like, I can just change your word. If I, if I reuse your words and then add this little mocking thing at the end there, it's like, oh, that dude just pulled out like a, like a seven dash B, you know, subparagraph nine. Whoa. (laughs) You know what I mean? But like, they all have like a very, it's like almost a formula that if you take those you know rhetorical skills you can you can dismantle anyone's argument and if you also know the logical fallacies you know how to like like bob and move and dance in between those and still throw those punches so like it abs i mean you wouldn't even have to convince me that it's an ancient art form because it blends the entire trivium together right like like a good pun i think that's another reason like, everyone like rolls their eyes but what's the phrase like like a pun is the highest form of oh, yeah. Well, but that's because it requires the, the full trivium. You have to understand grammar because usually a pun is like a word that can mean multiple things, right. right? So then you also have to understand the logic because usually the multiple things that the pun refers to are some kind of like, um, you know, like they're not symmetrical. So like it, you're setting up an expectation and then you're subverting it, which makes it the joke. Uh, and then the, the rhetoric, this is comedic timing and knowing how to deliver the joke. So, if you don't have the entire trivium down, and I don't think that it's like every good, I don't think Stanhope was like classically trained in the seven <laughs> liberal arts, right? Some people just naturally understand how these things work. They just put the pieces together. Leading this into a, a question, I almost feel like it's this NLP um, area too, where just like you said, Chris Rock maybe builds the audience up for the first 45 minutes and gets that energy going. That's the same thing as as like a sales pitch, right? If you go into like a multi-level marketing scheme, the first 45 minutes is going to be like big light show, flash, bang, you know, get the girls out here dancing. Let's watch this hologram. And then it's like, okay, now open up your pamphlets to the section nine. You know what I mean? And yeah. then like you try to, to steer that energy. And I feel like comedians uh, probably do this naturally. They do like the spatial anchoring, like all of that. But if you know NLP and then you go up on stage like you do, do you ever find yourself like I'm gonna I'm gonna like whip out the this trick from the toolbook, or are you like in the moment and all that goes out the window? I try to stay
3: in the moment as much as possible, but I, yeah, like I was talking about earlier, kind of pushing the audience and saying something that I know they're gonna like be like oh or like you know the groaner, you know you push them with a the groaner and then they're like ah. I thought I want to come back to the pun thing too, because I think that's interesting, but, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times in that moment, uh, and, and it takes a while, obviously to, to be able to be consciously, you know, in the NLP world, because you know, you're in the, you're in this moment with this audience and every one of those moments is different. So while you do a lot of the same material, it might be slightly different or accentuated differently, or we might try to incorporate somebody from the audience into a particular joke because they fit that, you know, in that moment. And those are all just different ways to kind of play with that energy and to get, you know, people more invested in, what it is that you're saying, but ultimately comedy is kind of a sales pitch too, right? Like whenever I go up there, I'm kind of selling myself, and I've got 10 minutes to be like, "Here's the person that I am," so that you guys understand who that is. Do you like me? Do you want me to keep talking and and making you laugh? Um, and and that's kind of the whole thing. Like whatever, however long that pitch is, usually you know we start out in comedy, we got a five minute set, and that's kind of like you hear a lot of the same things, right? Like. Oh well, I'm Jewish, or you know, as a I'm this is my ethnicity, and I'm from here, and so that means this thing, and that's like a common joke. They, they
2: should just run out on stage and pull like the big like uh like one arm jack and the the three dials, and it's like yes. you are a black, you know, female thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, and then you just make a joke about that. Like uh, my friend Sean had one because he's Hawaii, he's Hawaiianish. So he's like Hawaiian and Irish. So he's like a really bad drunk driver, you know? So, you know, like uh, that's his joke about his two ethnicities or whatever. So you see a lot of these similar kind of, I would say, uh, templates or models to kind of make a joke and try to get the audience to understand who you are. Because once you sell your perspective, I really do think you can go pretty... You can go pretty far, you know, like people knew Carlin was an angry man, an angry old man. So he sold that perspective and he's able to take that insanely far, you know, farther than anyone could prior to him uh, at at that point, you know, at least politically and stuff like that. Um, So in the moment, most of the time it's kind of planned for, I would say, most comedians, even the stuff that is kind of like crowd work a little bit because it's just a way to play into some stuff that they may already have up their sleeve. Um, But it's, but it's kind of like I heard Bill Burr talking about this because Patrice was talking to him apparently about walking around the joke and doing the joke differently. And I, I completely understand what he meant by that. Now it took me a long time, you know, but in the moment, I think it's more emotional than it is like a conscious choice, at least for me for now. Maybe, you know, as I continue to develop, I might be like, oh, well, I can, you know, do some anchoring here. You know, we call it a callback in comedy where you mention something and then you, you know, say it again later. And that's, (laughs) yeah, that's all that is. So, (laughs) but, but it's a really effective device and it's a great way, you know, to be memorable because that's really what it's all about. You want to be, you know, memorable to the audience. So they're like, I like that guy, you know, I want to hear him again or what else has he got? Right. And so. There's this kind of small demographic within the audience that you might call the tastemakers, the other comedians, that book, the bookers, the producers, all that kind of stuff who kind of spot the talent. And you want to... The secret society. Yeah, the secret society, right? Like that's a whole thing to navigate. And then you've got the rest of the audience. So you want to make everyone laugh, but kind of focus on that secret society a little bit more so that they know, you know that you, they so that they want to book you so that you get more shows so that you get more opportunities in comedy and it's it's crazy man when i got into this i thought it was just you just go up there and you just you know launch it out at, at the audience and that's what it's all about but oh man doing all the booking and all the producing and, and managing of things is um it, it's quite a quite a lot to it's exhausting you know dealing with the venues and all that kind of stuff it's a, it's a lot of things stacked on top of each other other than just telling dick jokes
2: And it's and it's not really like uh, an industry that has evolved too much, um, at least not for the actual workers. I I mean, at least it's a little bit different from, say, being an adventure guide, where at least in the world of comedy, if you really like doing the comedian part, you can just always do the comedian part, you know, where like maybe you can't always be the adventure guide. At some point you have to go in the back office In comedy. If you're really good, you're not going to like get stuck in the back office. But you're going to have a lot of people and a lot of back offices along the way, I guess. Uh, and I, I want to point out, too, a couple other NLP tricks that I always see comedians doing. Maybe not uh, in, you know, on, on purpose. And maybe you should. Maybe you could use these tricks and, Probably and program should. your audiences. <laughs> but there's the one of the embedded story. And that's where you start one story and then stop yourself and then start another one and then finish that one and then finish the outer one. And if you in the middle of that inner story... If you like mention your name, you know, damn it, Bootsy, or like, you know, like whatever your catchphrase is, you say at the crescendo of that inner story and then you finish it and then you, you know, go back in and finish the outer story. And that's the thing where like someone's driving back home, but even if they don't remember what the joke was, damn it, Bootsy, you know, that'll kind of like be stuck in there. And another one is the spatial anchoring. And this one you were saying, like, uh, you got a groaner, right? So if you know you've got a groaner coming up, some comedians, they'll kind of like walk to a certain part of the stage and give that groaner and get the audience's reaction. And then once that energy dissipates, they'll kind of like walk back over to the, where they were before, where the energy was a little bit like less groany. You know what I mean? And then now all of a sudden, if you'll just imagine there's like an X on the ground, it's like, okay, I'm going to get into groaner territory. Let me start meandering over here. Hmm. And again, since comedy is about expectation and, and deferment of that and like, you know, subverting expectations, you can like, start walking slowly over to the groaner corner and then like not tell a groaner and come back here and tell it, or like you can play with that. I I think that's where you're saying. Like you can circle the joke and figure out how you want to do it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The way that that audience in that
3: moment is, and the way that you present that joke or get to the punchline, I I should say, uh, it might change based on so many things, right? Like I, I might, if I've got an engaged crowd, I might start asking them questions before I ever get to the joke. Maybe we'll have some commonality, or maybe we'll find a new joke on the way to that later joke. But it's it's um, <clears throat> it it yeah. It's man, there's so much to consider with this, and things I didn't even ever think about when I just you know when I got started because I I just I guess I was just ignorant about the whole thing but then but then you know doing all these other things and you find out that a lot of these comedians people like bill burr he owns all things comedy um you know like several of these very well established comedians tom segura for instance who i get you know i get that all the time people think i look like tom segura all the time so i have a whole great looking guy yeah Yeah, he is especially now he's in he's he's really in great shape and all that but a lot of these guys they're incredible businessmen too and i think that has a lot to do with having to do these things. You know, it's a lot of the stuff you don't see, the producing, the creating, the promoting, you know, putting shows together. Um, and all in, 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 in all that are, is relationship management. And honestly is very difficult. You know, you want to try to give as many people, as many opportunities as possible because, as, and hoping that you'll be reciprocated for that, <clears throat> you know? And, um, uh, being true to yourself, having boundaries, but also being generous, uh, working with club owners, dealing with money. And you know, I, I'm sure you can imagine there's a lot of a lot of uh, things that could go wrong, can get fucked up. People have attitudes and egos and all kinds of things in the mix. So it can be very uh, frustrating and difficult. And there's a lot of pressure on you as a comedian if you're producing and creating a show. Um, to get the audience there, to do you know all the promotion, to have a great show, to to perform well, to have all of the lighting and the tech stuff sorted, you know all of these little elements that add up to one great show. I came from the music scene, and I thought comedy would be a lot like it, and it, frankly, it's really not. You know, it's uh, it's 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 your responsibility as the comedian, and you know, trying to force people to. And come check out comedy. You know, it's like some people just, it ain't for everybody, man. You know, <laughs> like some people don't have any business at a comedy show whatsoever. And there's a lot of people who have never been to. So it's kind of, that's kind of interesting. We try to get new people to come and and try it try it out at an open mic or something like that. and And create a community and a culture. That's what I've been trying to kind of focus on more. Like last summer, gas went up to like $5 a gallon and, you know, nothing was really happening. I was, before the pandemic, I was traveling a lot more. And uh, and then, so I was like, well, I'll just try to build some stuff here locally. And so I've been doing that and having a good bit of success with it, but also, you know, learning a lot of lessons and having a, a, some frustrations as well. You know, things don't always go the way that you want. You lose a venue or, you know... <clears throat> They change their mind, or they don't promote or get their stuff out in time, or a million billion things can happen. Uh, So, trying to make those decisions and put yourself in a place where it's like, I need to work on my act, and I want to also give other people opportunity. I don't want to spend all my time in a back room and be that guy, just be, and then everybody else gets the benefit of all the work that I've done. You know, but at the same time, I got to work on my act. I can't, you know, just have the same five minutes every time I go up in my room, people are going to get bored and leave. So it's like, <laughs> you know, juggling all of these little pieces. Um, and I, I have a lot of, m- even more respect for standups than I ever did. Um, and because of the whole business aspect and the hustle and the grind of it, because, you know, a lot of times we have to make our own opportunities or else we're not going to get them, right? Like if you can't, if you can't get, get into that secret society, then now what do you do? You have to create your own, you know, um, audience. You have to create your own uh, way to be able to perform. Otherwise, you know, you just drive. You can drive around and do open mics and pay to go up, or you can learn how to put together a show, produce a show, and get people
2: there. Right. Well, we're we're talking secret societies here in, in the comedy world, and I, it's interesting to me because. And maybe, maybe I don't know. Let me pose this as a question because I guess mine would be way more based on assumptions since I I'm so far detached from that world aside knowing from people in it. But it seems that in comedy, obviously merit has a huge role, right? Like, like you can't just get kind of like pushed up to the front lines as much as you hate Dane Cook, right? He knew how to make people laugh. He knew how to tell a joke. He knew how to be funny. It would be very hard to put a completely unfunny person up unless that itself was the joke. And it was like an Andy Kaufman uh, style bit. Right. But the other aspect of this too, is that unlike maybe in the music world, where if you truly have merit, you can be the worst person in the world and probably still have a fan base when it comes to comedy there's a huge merit aspect but you can also blackball yourself to the point where you could be the funniest person on the planet and you just might never have an outlet if no one wants to book you if no one wants to put you onto shows because it's I guess it's weird that uh, it's possible I mean some people during the pandemic put out you know like here's me doing stand up in my room alone in front of like a computer screen Uh, it it wasn't my thing right (laughs) it was terrible but but it's completely (laughs) different And it's not the same as if I'm a musician, I can be a horrible person, but then put out like a really quality album that everyone loves. So in comedy, there is this very real secret society of like gatekeepers where if I don't let you on the stage and I don't let you go into that meeting or I tell everyone else at that meeting, hey, all these other projects that we're working on are going to be gone. It is such a small, tiny world of comedy. It's not like okay, well, I'll just go and join like the right wing of comedy or the blue wing of comedy, or I'll go join the libertarian comedian group. Not the funniest comedian group, by the way, right? Um, but there's like there's no refuge once you burn yourself. So in in that regard, man, I almost see it as the the secret. I mean, I don't know if there's an actual name. What is the name of the actual secret society in the comp? But if there was an right. actual group that had a name they would be far more powerful relatively within that industry than Freemasons Mm. right now, any place on the globe, I think. Cause like, yeah, you can control like a little town. Maybe you can control the economy of a certain state or industry, maybe even nationally. But to talk about in an art form, right? Like you could blackball someone out of an art. Who was the dude that lied about like his dad died in like the towers or oh, whatever? Yeah, Steve Ranazzisi. Yeah, Exactly, right? Like <laughs> it's a black mark. And what is it about the comedy world? Is it just because it's small or maybe, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll ask a leading question here, but could it possibly be that same like occult power of the court jester? Like if you violate that royal power, like you know, you, You've got the energy of the country and even though you're telling j- dick jokes, it's like there's a responsibility that goes with it and if you screw that up and do the wrong thing, even though you're a comedian, like, I don't know, it's it's such an interesting role to have. Yeah, you definitely, I mean, yeah, you
3: definitely can be blackballed and it, it only takes, you know, one time, you know, it's like climbing the rock climb and you only have to screw up once. Um, but. But I I think it's kind of a little bit more regional uh, until you get maybe to like that Hollywood sort of thing. But there, so there are even multiple sets of sort of, you know, groups who are gatekeeping to kind of um, to 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 basically navigate. And then now, you know, especially after Me Too and all of that, you've got people who will make false accusations just to ruin someone's reputation, and uh, that's a thing to watch out for too. You know, and so. Not everybody who books is a comedian and not everybody who's a comedian books. So that's another part of it. And <clears throat> on one hand, I respect a comedian who books more because I know they know how hard it is to get up and tell jokes. On the other hand, I know they're going to have a little, probably, uh, they were, they are probably going to have more of a, um, bias. Than someone who's just a booker, right? Like they're just like, well, they're based on, you know, if it's just a booker, then hopefully they would be more merit-based. But then again, there's narcissists on, I'd say, both sides. I mean, people who are in comedy are looking for validation, attention, and uh, you know, per, uh, stage time and all that kind of stuff. So I think they're often willing to do some I, I, yeah i'm not trying to generalize the whole group but let's do it let's generalize but no. there's a lot but i mean just like just like politicians or actors or whoever right like these people are vying for the most power some people see it as as very competitive against each other and they'll do whatever they can to put themselves forward
2: i think but, a lot of yeah, well, I was ahead. gonna say this is this is also where the secret society maybe comes in in a good way, right? Because it's like if you're an influencer, if you're a Logan Paul, yeah, you can get people to flood the venues and like make sure that you always get stage time because it brings people in the door. But if those tastemakers are just like whatever, I don't care, then you still don't get to that next echelon, right? Yeah, dude, absolutely.
3: So there's all of that, and I I, I will say this: it's I don't think it's ever been this way. Where you had more opportunity as an individual as a comedian and more uh, I would say agency than you do now even with all of this you still have more of an opportunity now as an individual than you ever did in this world because it used to just be you you know you try out and the only thing that's going on is like whatever the punchline club is or whatever the comedy club the laugh hut that's in your town you know that's the only way to get you know, onto a circuit, so to speak, as you start hosting there and then somebody picks you up and you go on tour with them and you middle for them. Well, for at least for now, if you know, if you want to do sketches online or if you cut your own clips and post those online, then you can get, you can gain your own following. That's what a lot of these comedians are doing. Now they build up a lot of stuff and then do a big campaign, which is smart. And I get to see, you know, how people approach that. Over the past couple of years, because so much has changed with podcasting. And, you know, if you take somebody like Stavros Halkias, I don't know if you know who he is. He's super funny. He does a ton of crowd work. He's really fun and funny. Uh, He was on um, a podcast called Come Town, which got really popular over the pandemic with Nick Mullen and Adam Friedland.
2: Oh, uh, he's got glasses. Got with the glasses. Adam Friedland. Uh, no Stavros.
3: Oh, Stavros. Yeah. He, he sometimes wears glasses. He's kind of a bald guy. He's, 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 he's a robust looking guy. He likes to eat and he laughs a lot during his set and does a lot of crowd work. And he talks about gross stuff. He's like, who here has had a threesome, you know, he'll start, you know, which that's kind of like his, one of his go-to questions that he does a ton of crowd work. So what he did was he just took a lot of these crowd work clips and Started putting them out, you know, a day every single day. They he's putting out new clips, new little clips, new little clips. So he didn't eat into his material, but he used all of those crowd work clips to promote his special on YouTube. Then the YouTube special comes out, and then a lot of people, you know, watch that. Now they know who he is, they check out his podcast, and all that kind of stuff. So watching the business model and how people are approaching it, it it's different. And then you got somebody like, let's say, Jay Leno, completely different take, right? Like Jay Leno's never put out a special. So, you know, from his angle, he's like, why would I do that? I can keep my material and over 20 years, keep developing it or however long. And then, you know, the amount of money that I can make per performance per each one of those jokes is so much higher. Because once you put that special out and you put it out for everybody, now all that stuff, you've already burned it. It's gone. So you can't really do it again.
2: You know, that's a good point. Like, like you can keep it in uh, these like small little crowds. It would be like if a band doesn't release certain songs, and you have to go and watch them live in order to see, which is a very real tactic, right? And it also emphasizes that it's different each time, and that the crowd energy is a little bit different. Um, w- so you mentioned something about like the regional aspect of this, and you mentioned like the the Me Too thing, which kind of changed a little bit of the comedy landscape. Is, and I and I guess that there's kind of been this initiative. Uh, what Ron White and Joe Rogan and red band and and um uh tony radcliffe where they're trying to make austin the comedy capital and there's like this big migration tour to get on kill tony and just i guess be out there and they're just all opening up clubs is that a is that a real thing like why aren't you in austin right now uh you know what i mean like is, yeah. is it like truly like this new mecca like what do you think about that whole movement I think it's awesome. I mean, I think it's great when comedians You kind of have to say that
3: too though, right? You don't get blackballed. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obligated to say I think it's a great thing. Um but, well, yeah, I think every locality can have a good comedy scene. I don't think it needs to be where it's Holly, it's just LA and New York and Chicago. I think that's silly. I think that's been outdated for a while. And especially with everything that we've dealt with over the past couple of years, I just I don't want anything to do with a highly dense area. You know, uh, I live in a smaller town and I like it, uh, but it's big enough place to where we can have a comedy scene here. So I think the way that it works really well is if in every city, there's a good comedy scene established and multiple opportunities for comedians to come through because the way that we wear our, wear out our audiences is by doing the same material over and over again. Um, And when you're a local comedian, it's kind of like that Bible verse. What is it like? A a prophet has no honor in his hometown. It's like people come and see me every week at my open mic. Right. So they're like, who is this guy? But when I go up to like, you know,
2: Johnson city, Tennessee or whatever, I'm like the headliner. And they're like, Oh, we're going to stick around. Yeah, dude. Again, like if you're in a band, you pretty much like one of the unwritten rules is you don't perform in your own town because then everyone's just like, oh, yeah, like that, that asshole from high school. I know him, you know what I mean? But if you just go a couple town over, it's like, oh, man, these guys are from a different place. They must be big to be on the road, you know? but it's, it's a real thing. It's, you know, it's, it's NLP, dude. It is, it is a 100%. So uh, a big reason why
3: I'm not in Austin is I'm just building my own business here because I don't want to really be beholden to anything. What if I did get blackballed? You know what I mean? Like I recently read a guy's uh, book on creativity and the biggest, like the first chapter, I want to say it was like, don't quit your day job. You know, he was like a Cartoonist, and then he had a, another job. And his whole point was if I went full on into cartooning, then I would have a boss and a person, you know, telling me what I can and can't do. I'm beholden to them, they can manipulate me or make me make decisions about my work, uh, and, and, and force my hand, uh, to do certain things. So, because of that, I he's like, I don't quit my day job, and so I thought that was. Very smart. I've always been a fan of having multiple streams of income. It's just if you can, right? Like, uh, I understand the other side of that picture too, where it's like put all your eggs in one basket and watch it like a hawk. I mean, I think you have to do that at first anyway, even if you do have multiple streams. But, you know, I like that idea. I've always liked that idea. I've always, uh, you know, since sort of when I hit 30, I've always looked for different ways to make money um, that would not necessarily be trading my time directly for dollars so uh so i'm a big fan of that that's a big reason why i'm not in austin and then another reason is if i build the scene here then when people from austin or nashville or chicago or wherever they come here they have opportunities and i i made that happen or and part of a group of people who made that happen for them then hopefully whenever I, i'm like hey guys i'm gonna come to austin then they will be like oh dude i got a room for you come come hit my mic you know come do this and that's
2: kind of how that whole scene works it's it's that, like a, that, re, that reciprocation you were talking about earlier where you yeah. just kind of you you pay your dues another masonic term <laughs> and hope that it kind of comes back at you again I think there's a lot of truth to that Pandu's. in any,
3: in any industry or thing, you know, it's like, you got, you start from the bottom you work your way up. When I got into comedy, I dove to the bottom and, and I, and I'm, I think that's a good way to approach things because it's like, I don't want anybody to be like, well, you got here cause you knew so-and-so, or, you know, ha- it's like, I don't want to get there Heard I heard your mom's like Paulie Shore or something. Man. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's like I want to, I, I want to be good enough. My, my goal. Everybody has a different goal. Some people's goal is to be famous. Some people's goal is to have a Netflix special or a this or a that. That's all well and good. My goal is to be good. I, I don't really give a shit about any of that stuff. Like, yeah, sure, it'd be cool to get a special or whatever. I can shoot my own special though. Now, like I've seen all these other people do it. If I wanted to, um, you know. So it's not it's not that dangling carrot like it probably used to be where it's like oh we'll do this this and this and you'll get a sitcom or whatever but everybody's got you're like dude i've got a 4k camera in my pocket right now right yeah yeah
2: yeah i don't don't need all of
3: that a minute you know a minute or two and you know have a stupid dumb tiktok thing if that's what we want you know so for me it's really about that and just developing that and then when it's time to campaign you know taking a lot of notes and understanding how other people have done their marketing and and strategically you know uh you know, push themselves sort of out into the forefront. Cause that's kind of how you'll see that every so often you'll see kind of a comedian who kind of, who kind of comes out into the forefront. Jane, Shane Gillis was after he got canceled from Saturday night live and all that, but he kind of came out into the forefront. Tim Dillon kind of came out into the forefront and Tim Dillon had a lot of opportunities even before that I believe he thought he was ready for, Um, and, and didn't get those opportunities and nobody knew because he hadn't come to the forefront yet. But at that time, you know, at the, at the, at the time, and it's opposed, I think that's just one of those things that kind of happens. Um, and then to try to be prepared and have a decent strategy for that. For me, I really like a lot of the spirituality stuff and the conspiracy stuff and, and talking about these topics. A lot of comedians probably started doing comedy before. They maybe went down these roads. So they don't, they may or may not want to talk about these things. You know, it's like, and it's kind of up to you. Uh, I do a lot of self deprecating humor too, but, you know, I like to talk about things that I think matter because I don't want to just waste time up there and feel like I didn't say anything. Right. Like if I came up here, of course, I want to make you laugh, you know, of course, but I want to talk about something that. You know, kind of something to think about. Something, that, you know, that, that I don't want to waste your time and just tell, like, to, you know, something pointless up there. Well, I want well, people speaking to, of
2: getting deep. Before you said that you wanted to uh, to get back into puns. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So the uh, high, the highest form of comedy. The right? highest
3: form of comedy. Yeah. And I and I I will respectfully disagree that it's the <laughs> highest form of com- But um, but I think that's like. That's the beginning of it. That's the beginning of learning that ancient skill of writing jokes. And stand-up comedy is not just writing jokes either. You know, it's kind, it's, it's kind of like a speech. You know, as we've talked about, like the NLP thing, telling a story, a story within a story. You know, and putting those little things in there. Story is how we all learn as humans. So, story is very powerful, but it's not just random jokes too. Cause if you just go up there and just say random jokes, that's cool. Again, I'm not throwing shade on that. Like Mitch but, Hedberg or, <laughs> Oh, I love Mitch Hedberg so much or Steven Wright. Right. Like uh, that's great. But for, for me and just the, the way that I approach it is that, like, I'm trying to kind of like have a spiel, you know, some sort of a spiel. And then within that spiel, you know, there are certain, there, there are lots of jokes or and maybe a couple of points. You know, nothing too crazy, but everyone's got a different sort of approach. There's a guy named Stuart Huff, who's one of the best living comics. Most people probably never have heard of him. Yeah, he's, never heard of him. Stephen he's a Huff. real, uh, yeah, uh, Stuart Huff. Stuart Huff. Yeah. S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Uh, he's got, he's got a special from like 2018 that's on YouTube and it's incredible. He like his teaching you the whole time. He's like a, an educator that just makes you laugh. And there's a lot of other comedians I would say too, that people just have never largely heard of that are incredibly good at, you know, being an orator and, captivating people's attention telling them stuff teaching them stuff and there's so many different ways to kind of do it do the art form um but it's it's jokes and it's kind of a speech and it's a perspective so it's all these kind of things that kind of wrap together that really kind of make your act whatever it, it is um and and that's part of it too is marketing and branding and that sales pitch it's like so what are you? What's your mix? What do you do? You know, you're, you're at this, you're at that, you know, it's like, uh, that i had Jason Webb here. Right. And he's like a Southern, a Southern preacher, a Southern preacher's son with a dark twist. It's like, that's a great little tagline, right? Like when I go to see him, I know exactly what I'm going to see based on that tagline. Right. He's got an accent, you know, he's, you know, he's, he lived in the church. I can relate to that if he grew up in the church, you know, so I already kind of know what I'm getting. And so yeah, I'm
2: I'm thinking Larry, the cable guy where like the name and the brand, like it, it sets you up. It tells you what, what mode to be in when you show up to the show instead of like, you know, welcome John Smith. And you're just like, Oh, what's this guy's deal? You know?
3: Right. Exactly. And so a lot of other comedians will ask you that, like, what's your mix? What, what do you, what do you, you know, how are you working? What's your act about, you know, kind of thing. So that's part of it too. And, and it's like, you don't know that obviously when you first start, you have no idea, but you know, cause you're like refining your brand of humor and how you're going to approach people and things and what you're going to talk about and, and why. So there's like all of this stuff. And that's, I think why it takes a, a lot of development for comedians because it's, a, it's a collection of skills. It's not just one skill. I thought it was just one skill. I was like, Oh, up comedy. I'll learn that. And then you're like, well, learn up comedy. Okay. Well, you got to learn to write a joke. You got to learn how to public speak, you got to learn how to produce a show, book a show, manage relationships, be an entrepreneur, you know, work with venues, you know, all of these things are kind of part of that um part of part of paying your dues, right? Like uh if somebody who's been working their butt off, they they come through and they headline, you can almost bet that they've run a room and hosted a show themselves and they're like, "Thank you so much for hosting, dude. I I feel for you." You know, Uh, thanks thanks for doing all this work you know but they know because they've been there and they probably hosted a room for five years and did all of those things in order to get to where they are now uh so it's it's part of the the growth the the graduation to the next level type of thing
2: we were talking about that earlier too before we started that sometimes people it feels like they just came out of nowhere and they've got all this, they've got an hour of material and it happens with bands too. And I guess when you don't know how the sausage is made and you don't care about the inside baseball, consider like a a band that comes out and they've, you know, they, they skyrocket and they got platinum albums. A lot of the time, if it's their debut album, they've had 10, 12, 15 plus years to just like flesh out the cream of the crop, right? Like their best material and comedians might do that too, where maybe nobody even knows that you do comedy and you're working out your material in a bunch of little small clubs and it takes you a few years. And then finally, I guess you get to a certain critical mass and you're like, okay, now I'm ready to go and do like a long routine. And I'm like, oh man, this newcomer onto the scene. And <laughs> it's like, you know, again on the band analogy, it's like, dude, I've been a master of drums or guitar or singing for, you know, two decades, but you're just only hearing of me now because I finally, you know, got my shit together and I and I finally figured out how to maintain relationships. And then now here I am, world.
3: Yeah, dude. It's exactly like that. And that's what's been so cool about catching up on your stuff is I see, you know, what you've been working on over the past several dozens of years. And it's a huge collection, a huge body of work. And I think the value of doing all of these things is, is, is learning and refining the skill. And then you see everything that you've put uh, in your, your time and energy and effort into. And it's like, okay, well, it's exactly like you're saying, you know, and then you get in there and then you're like, you're primed and ready. And it's like, okay, now I'm ready to, to release this. I'm I'm ready to bring it. Cause you, yeah, you don't, you don't want to pull the veil too soon. You know, it won't be like that great work or whatever, right? Like you want to pull the sheet off the masterpiece. You don't want that to be half done. You want, you know, you want that to be like, oh, wow.
2: Some people do, man. I mean, honestly, with with social media, let me get on my like old man rant uh, train here because I did turn 40 this year. So I'm allowed to, but but sometimes with social media, there is almost this concept. And um, I'll date myself too, because I go into hermit mode. I was joking that like, you might not hear from me for two or three years. It's not because I fell off and I got something else It's just like a hundred percent of my focus might be on this other thing. Um, But like when you, when you come back from that and you kind of like unleash it onto everyone, uh, you know, it takes, it takes a lot out, but also the, the social media concept is like post something every day, you know, have an update every week. So if I've got this like huge one thing I've been working on, yeah, I like to post little teasers and stuff, but just like you, you know, I don't want to like rip the whole thing down and be like, Okay, come back next month and I'm going to rip it down again. And it'll, there'll be like a little bit of extra detail on the shoulder. And then I'm going to rip it down again the next month. And maybe like the eye will be a little bit more completed after once it's actually done and you're so proud of it. And it took you like years to get there. Everyone's just like, oh, what changed between? Oh, yeah. yeah I guess like there's like a strand of hair over here on the forehead. Like that's cool, man. So like you lose that energy, right? It's if, yeah. like, I would almost, I mean, like, let's get woo woo, but you know, it's Tesla realizing that like you send the energy away, you wait for it. You have to have the timing when it comes back. You just kind of sprinkle a little bit more and you send it back on its way. And after it does that a few times, you're like, okay, now it's got enough power to like, but you have to synchronize it, right? You can't just like wait for it to come and then go away and then take the, the sheet off because it's like, Oh, the energy's not here. What happened? So there, there's a lot of planning with it. It's a lot. It
3: is. And that's, that's part of it. I see, I think, I think it's a mistake when I see a lot of uh, comedians posting clips um, too soon, right? It's like you're posting a clip. Make sure, first of all, that it's a really funny clip. Not that just you you caught some people laughing and now people are going to think you're funny because you know, you posted a clip of people laughing in it, you know what I mean? Like post that funny- would actually
2: be a pretty good uh, commercial though. If it was just like <laughs> them about to say a joke <laughs> and then you cut the joke and then you just show the audience laughing and it's just ah, like nothing. but. Dying. Yeah, it would. I mean, now if you can do that by
3: all means, you know, do that. Uh, but you know, it's like, just from a marketing perspective, I think we get told what to do a lot and not what the strategy is behind it. It's like, people are like, well, post your stuff and put it out there. Well, hold on. Like, wait just a second. Like, let's talk about this. This needs to be strategic. You know, don't just start doing that willy nilly without a direction or without a bit of a strategy because it's like you said, you know, you pull that, you know, that uh, sheet off and then you've got like uh, N- unfinished work or whatever uh, one's
2: just stripping again he does yeah, this every friday exactly
3: and then you know and He's then people, don't, again. people don't care you know they just lose interest and then they're like well and and if you've seen somebody bomb <laughs> and you know this to be true I, I you know i'm suffering from this uh myself it's like if you see somebody bomb you can't unsee that like it's it's it, it doesn't mean the person's not funny and they're not going to kill the next night and we do all bomb but you still can't unsee that. So like, if you could put that out there, you know, uh, some, something that is lackluster, something that's not a good representation of your work, and people see that, well, you've just diluted yourself and your image and what you can provide for people.
2: That, that social media aspect, right? Yeah, it's just like, like you're saying. Always be your best self mm-hmm. <laughs> with a fake plane and like, yeah, oh, but, it, but it works, man. That's, yeah, it, works does. It, it does. It and, does. And, and and
3: I think most people, I used to think people did, were interested in the process. Now I really don't think they are, largely. You know, they want it to seem easy from that perspective. That's what gives that, you know, uh, sort of excitement and uh, mind blowingness is they want it to seem easy. Um, you know, if, if you saw how much work some of these people were putting into their act, and you'd be like, damn, like, because you're not getting that much result from it. You know, like <laughs> they say it takes 25 hours of writing to write a single joke. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it doesn't seem wrong to me, you know, and so like, what, what people want to see is this condensed act of just like, bam, 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 you know, just punch it. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. It's fun to do, but it takes a long time to develop that ability and that string of stuff. And then it's also temporary too. like, you might have, you know, material that it will work this month, but like, you know, I got a cocaine bear joke right now. That's hilarious. But in, a, in two
2: years, people will be like, uh, ah, <laughs> What's cocaine? There, you know? Play yeah, free exactly. bird. Are there any good hecklers? Has there any been a? Sh- has there ever been a show you've been to when, like, afterwards, all the comedians were like, "Dude, the, the heckler at three hours in, Chef's Kiss, like <laughs> that guy actually made this show better." Has that ever happened, hmm. or is is heckling just like a universally despised thing? It m- mostly is universally despised.
3: I don't want to say I'm pro heckle but I'm pretty neutral. So I think sometimes it can save the show. I think sometimes it can be a lot of fun. It just depends on the environment. Like if you go and see a stage show where it's like a comedian's doing a theater and there's a thousand people, shut up. Just don't say anything, be quiet. It's a performance. <laughs> but if you're in a open mic club and there's 10 people in there and the comedian's bombing, I mean, I wouldn't say like yell out just for the sake of it, but... If you can make that vibe funny, because I, I feel like that, that's an energy too, right? Like there's a funny energy where people will just laugh for no reason, you know? And so for, for comedy, we want to somehow try to invite that energy. in. if we can somehow figure out a way to get that in. So I think there can be a, a room like that, but it's got to be kind of understood. I'm doing a show next week that's a crowd work show. So it's focused specifically on crowd work. So people are allowed to kind of shout out. And at one of my mics, we do a, a ton of like improvisational joke writings in the moment where people will, you know, uh, holler out stuff like they do stand up on the spot. Um, and then the comedian just kind of has to riff off of that and see what they can do. And I think that's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. But it's also it, it's also like kind of uh, presented in, in that container you know like if you're at a show and it's a stand up show and all of that like you probably it's it's that stuff's mostly written they expect even if they're doing crowd work they know what the person's going to say and they're you know that's it's kind of all sort of rehearsed but when you're in a smaller environment uh like an open mic or a small club or something like that sometimes it can be very fun Uh, To engage. I love engaging with the audience when I can. When you first start doing comedy, it's not an opportunity that you get to do very much crowd work. People who do crowd work are very established and have been doing it for a long time. Because most of the open mics, it'll be five or six people and they're all comics. So you can't be like doing crowd work on a comic. And It's like, hey, fuck you. You know, buddy, it's like, that's the guy who's going to go up next after you or whatever, you know, <laughs> like you don't want to offend anybody. You bummed a ride from him to get there. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and then You just call him out on stage, <laughs> which is funny in a way. Um, But, uh, but yeah, like I don't have really a problem with people. I want to engage in interact. I think the most important thing is interaction with the audience. And that gets, it's hard. It's, it gets, it's easy to, lo- to lose that. Um, but you have to work to be able to keep their energy and attention. And sometimes, yeah, a heckle, sometimes a heckle can make all the difference and sometimes it can, uh, just turn, turn the show, you know, and, and, and it'll, and, and people I think are on your side. If someone heckles you, you know, uh, from the audience, but I've also seen it too, to where the comedian just loses that interaction as well, which is also very fun.
2: Well, if they become serious at any point, that's another unwritten rule, that if you get heckled and then you drop your comedic timing and then become serious, you immediately lose. And there's that transfer. Of, and, I, and I really do, like, on this occult level, it's like, I'm in the audience and this guy's got all this energy and everyone's been pouring their energy into him and he's not doing anything with it. Like, I can do something with that energy, so let me heckle. And then now all of a sudden the focus is on me. And if I can make you lose your footing and now you look like an asshole, it's almost mm-hmm. like I, I mm-hmm. got some of that energy, right? And it might just be a quick dopamine rush and then it, it dissipates back through the room, but there's a very real transaction going on there. Definitely.
3: Definitely so. And some people think you, you know, some people think that, oh, I'll make the show better by heckling. And 99% of the time, that's just not the case but a little joke book of like
2: their heckle, the heckles are like pre-written out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had somebody come in and kind of do that, you know? And then first thing they did was like, say something about my hair and, uh, or my lack thereof of hair, you know? And then I, I have, I had a quip that I just like, you know, already had in my mind. And I just threw that back at them and, that shut right up, and I just went on with the show. Um, First so,
2: shuffling through, like, damn, let me, get <laughs> damn, he
3: got me on that. How did he know I was gonna call him bald? You <laughs> know, <laughs> it's only been fifteen years. You know, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I think it can be fun. I like engaging with the audience. I encourage that, and and honestly, I've written, I've ha- I've gotten punchlines from the audience just doing crowd work to them. You know, asking them about their spiritual practice or whatever, right? And then just feeling that out. And, you know, something will happen. We'll come to we'll come together on something. Somebody'll shout something out that'll be hilarious. Uh, or I'll think of something in response to something that someone shouted that's hilarious. And then that winds up coming into my act because it's it's funny. You know, it just happened in that moment and it was like the it was the right thing. Um so yeah, I'm I'm I love that. I think engaging and interacting with the audience is great as long as it's in good taste, you know
2: yeah that's before the aristocrats uh joke comes out right oh my god i love that so much we need to do an (laughs) aristocrats night here (laughs) so that that's another one like man if you if you are not really funny that's something because because what is it it's like a 15 you know five to 15 minute setup and then if you can't deliver that punchline man that's like a very awkward Build up to a nothing. So <laughs> yeah. I've heard, I've seen someone try and tell an aristocrat's joke before that didn't deliver, and it's mm. just like you know, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, that's tough because you got to do a different take on it that hasn't been done, or else it's really not gonna. I mean, especially since that documentary's been out. Like that's a, there's some high standards to uh, to try to
2: be another out. secret society reference, man. Like that that joke was kind of they they mentioned it a few times. I don't know if by name, but it's like an initiation ritual that once mm. you've heard someone tell this, and then once you yourself have told it and it doesn't happen out in like the public, it happens in a, a small, like inner sanctum of like the elites. Right. Wow. Um, so it, uh, I, there's so many cool correlations of that, but <laughs> we're running in a little bit long and I don't want to have you go without doing a little PCP with me. So have okay. you done PCP before? I have not. Okay. If you look under your chair, there's a little, no, uh, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna rapid fire some conspiracy and paranormal related questions at you. Awesome. And I want you to just give me a zero to ten rating. Okay. Zero means I don't care, I don't even think about it. And tens like, stay. You know, I'm gonna convince you of it after this is over. Here's a pamphlet. You know, he, we meet at the docks on Wednesday. Whatever. <laughs> okay. so, are you ready for this? I'm ready, dude. Let's do it. Hey, conspiracy buffs! I double dare you to take some PCP. The paranormal conspiracy probe. On your marks, get set, and go. All right, question one. Is Alex Jones and Bill Hicks the same person? Wrong. Well, I'm going well, to make it a statement. Alex Jones and Bill Hicks are the same person. Zero to ten. Zero. Zero. Wow. Okay, strong Strong words right out the box. Andy Kaufman died in 1984. Ten. Oh okay. Wow, we're we're very polarizing today. I like it though. Richard Pryor was in the CIA. Five. Okay, okay. Uh Lenny um uh Lenny Bruce overdosed. Three. Oh wow. Robin Williams was in the Illuminati. Nine. Joan Rivers was right about the thing that she said about the president's wife. Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get into that. We're going to get into that. Uh, ghosts are real. Like a Victorian creepy ghost wandering the halls. Uh, seven. Bigfoot's real. Uh Eight. <laughs> reptilian shape shifters from the draco star system are real and they've stepped foot on the planet earth six the earth is flat uh two the earth is hollow eight okay uh the earth is a perfect sphere well okay not perfect the earth is round uh nine dinosaurs are real uh, eight. Okay. Uh, let's I'm trying, let's see. Chemtrail. Chemtrails are real. Oh, that's a that's that's a ten. Oh uh, man, I want to ask you what what are some conspiracy theories that you don't believe that a lot of other people do believe? So I don't think that things are quite so
3: specifically orchestrated as to the kind of reference, what we were talking about earlier with energy and how crowds and groups and their minds work. I think it's a little bit less like a, uh, you know, that claw that goes down and like picks up a thing or whatever. It's like, it's less like that. And it's more like a, a movement, like a wave. So I think a lot of, I think a lot of the conspiracies that we hear are, are true, but I don't know that they w- went Necessarily according to some specific exact plan, I think it's more like energy moving in a certain direction and people knowing how to how to kind of play with that energy. You know that polarizing energy and, and the negation. There's I can't remember what the book is; it it, it, it escapes me. But uh, there's a quote where he says the basically, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but that the conspiracy theorists themselves are the people who are mostly pushing our movement that they're, that they're helping us. This is like some technocratic book in like the fifties or sixties. And I can't remember the name of, but the the whole idea is that the conspiracy theorists are ourselves themselves, whoever we, or they are, are pushing these agendas forward. Um, really so, unconsciously by following them and becoming obsessed with them and then sharing the information. And then, you know, putting all that out there
2: i want to talk about joan rivers this is a family show this this is for kids so let's not get too crazy but she basically made a very specific implication about the president's at the time's wife slash husband i guess it puts it into it she put it into a gray area so and you said 11 and i know some of it is funny and i, and I think it's one of the, the funniest things that she like, was the best exiting joke of any comedian really it's going to live like that joke's going to live on longer than <laughs> she like literally than she will but but like is this uh is this like a popular inside joke I'd never heard it before that so I'm curious how much of that was a joke how much of that do you think she believed like truly and how much like do people outside you know believe it so I think she I don't think she probably
3: I don't know. I'm going to speculate and say that she probably didn't fully believe it, but saw an opportunity for some uh, hilarious joke and took that because there is like a whole movement of people who are like into this conspiracy. And there's a ton of different pictures that they'll show. I've seen a few videos. They're pretty funny uh, of different people uh, and their genders being the opposite of what we're publicly told. Bill Gates being one of them with that like leany, you know, he's like laying across <laughs> the desk <laughs> and then his wife too. Uh, and then they, they like, they draw on their jaw lines and do all this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent involved in that as a conspiracy, but, um, but I thought, it yeah, I thought that joke was absolutely hilarious. I'm, I'm, I, I I put 11, uh, obviously, as a little bit. I was being a little bit hyperbolic, but I think it's interesting and hilarious and, and very curious that that was the last
2: joke she ever made against um, Michelle Obama. Um, well, yeah, you better be careful how much you laugh at that one. Right. And, and <laughs> another example, man, of like borderline hate speech, except the messenger gets to be the royal court jester. Right, If if it were almost anyone else, not to be like, you know, I couldn't say that because I'm a white man, but there really is something about Joan Rivers saying that specific accusation that if, you know, if it was like Ben Shapiro that made the accusation, it might have gone over differently, <laughs> right?
3: Yeah,
2: 100%. Or <laughs> uh, so... Andy Kaufman. I know I just meant, and yeah, I think he probably also died in 1984. I don't know. But there's a, a a small comedy conspiracy theory that he faked his own death. And that's only because he was so good at playing this weird deadpan character, I guess. Um, I don't know. I just want to get your general thoughts on Andy. Like, is he in his own category? Did he like, you know, are we ever going to see another Andy Kaufman? Do you think that comedy still works? Was it, Hmm. Did it, did he, was he funny because he existed in a specific moment of time? I think, I think he, I think he had a very specific
3: and unique skill where he just kind of knew how to mess with people, you know, very, very well. I mean, look at all the wrestling stuff. Um, I,
2: yeah, one of the best dude. and it's, and it's so hard to describe because it's not just a routine. It's like. He put the whole world on for such a... Oh, man. Oh, dude. And wrestling the women and being that huge, despicable, misogynistic
3: character. It was so, so, so good. And I think the time of that definitely had a lot to do with it. But I think if he were alive now, he could find other things to poke at. So, I mean, I just think he was just specifically... Like, when you see him do that bit bit with the congas and he's like, you know, it turns into, like, music and stuff. I mean, he... he was in a different category and I think he would be again. um, I think Jim Carrey also, I would say did an amazing job playing him in that movie. It was incredible. Um, But yeah, I I don't, I don't think he would fake his death. I, I don't think he would have had to, I think he could have, I think he could have gone away if he wanted to still, you know, at that point. So I don't really see the point in faking, faking his death, but just as like the ultimate inside joke. May, I mean, yeah, maybe so. I mean, I can see why he might want to do that, I guess. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he did or not. That's a good question. I don't, I don't. And, think and so. you
2: gave a, a zero to Alex Jones, Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks. Yeah, I, I agree. I just because I've seen Alex Jones try to tell a joke before, and there's just you, you couldn't not be Bill Hicks. I guess that's my ultimate argument against it. I just I love Bill Hicks so much. I like Alex
3: Jones too. I don't, uh, I you know, as a character, uh, as a figure. Um, and I've the seen WBL those Pressler, documentaries. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. And I've seen those documentaries too that uh, people have done, and they're interesting and intriguing. But then whenever I see Alex, yeah, I, whenever I see Alex, I, I just I, I don't I don't see the correlation there, really. Uh, and I think that he would be a lot, fu- I think he would be a lot funnier if it, if it was true, you know, uh, a lot funnier, but I, Bill Hicks is my favorite. Like he's my favorite comedian uh, probably of all time. Uh, and, and uh, so that's part of it too. It's like, even cause I, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I think Bill Hicks would have out trolled Trump and Alex Jones got out trolled by Trump. So,
2: you know what? And Bill Hicks, Uh, Also existing in his own category, which it's very hard to describe him because he's not as uh, specific of a flavor as Andy Kaufman is, where at least even if you don't understand Kaufman's thing, you understand what he's doing. But Bill Hicks violating like almost everything I was saying earlier, like he could get mad on stage and angry and pissed off and like get into a legit argument with a heckler but then go right back in the jokes in a way that I've, I've never seen any comedian ever be able to do like his anger was funny, but it was, I mean, again, it's impossible for me to put into words because you know, it's like telling, it's like taking an LSD trip, right? Bill, Bill Hicks would probably like that kind of analogy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was incredible
3: and he wasn't always funny either. He was all, he was, he was, sometimes on one but you
2: like you Go said boy yeah yeah exactly but yeah. everyone he, liked that but no. then it like it turned into a thing right then he would like i don't know it was, it's there was something magic about it and then he I'm, bi- I'm biased because I, I mean yeah. i don't know if you can see it behind me i've got a, a bill hicks poster behind me oh, he's awesome. got the little cowboy hat on so blurry
3: yeah, yeah yeah i see it yeah dude uh yeah 100 percent huge huge fan of that guy and uh yeah, he, he had an amazing ability to jump in from some crazy rant into a joke. And I, one of my favorite jokes of his is like just a very simple physical joke where he's like, ah, how about a joke? How about some comedy? I always love to put a little comedy in my act. And he does the impression of Mick Jagger. <laughs> where he just takes a cigarette and puts it in the mic stand. <laughs> and walks away from it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so funny, dude.
2: Sorry, so i
3: sorry, not Mick
2: Jagger, but the other. I I think talking about Bill Hicks is the perfect way to uh to end this off. We we started talking about comedy. Let's let's put it out on the uh the the reigning champ, the the notorious B.I.G. Tupac combination of rap, which was Bill Hicks. Uh, but then the next in line, the next to take the throne, is Owen Hunt, A.K.A. Bootsy Greenwood. Where can people find you? Where's the Blue Collar Mystics? What are the blue collar mystics? What websites do we type in? Where do we send the money?
3: All right, guys. Uh, First off, I go by Boots of Greenwood. That's my stripper name. So, you know, if you're looking for a good time late night, holler at me. Um, That's uh, what I go by on Instagram. And if you type that into Facebook or any of the other search engines, you will find me. Blue Collar Mystics is the name of my podcast, Blue Collar Mystics. I believe we really kind of all are Blue Collar Mystics. It's really a practical approach to spirituality, sense of humor, um, really open, opened up to the mysteries of the universe and learning all the time. Um, <clears throat> I've got a lot of audiobooks that are up on my channel. I just re-rebranded my channel to Bootsy Greenwood, uh, but the podcast is still Blue Collar Mystics, and you can find that... Uh, Bootsy Greenwood on YouTube, or if you type in Blue Collar Mystics, it'll come right up to even in a a Google search, and you'll be able to find the podcast, which is on Blue Collar Mystics, and then my personal page, which is Bootsy Greenwood. I've got some audio books, and I've got some comedy on my page. Go and check that out and shoot me a message. I'm very responsive and uh, excited to hear from anyone.
2: So hit me up. Word, word, links in the description to everything that Bootsy just pointed out. Uh, maybe even some some dates to like shows or link to a calendar or something uh, but yeah we're we're going to we're going to support Bootsy the best that we can drop a comment go follow him go click on blue collar mystics give him a four star review i didn't say five because you don't want him to get complacent you always want to give someone else give him a five star review don't give him four <laughs> all right i love you guys also buy this thing right here buy it they said it was forbidden they said it was dangerous
1: They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane. Into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus. An enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself. Their power at your fingertips. Their existence. Your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus. Ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day. Knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today.